0: Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about classical education, classical books, old things, philosophy, history, art. And two doors. And You preempted it. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, darn right. We got some
1: doors. I know where we were headed. Um, I mean, These episodes
2: were years ago at this point. Years. And
1: you still make fun of me for that. You, you brought
2: it up this time. Yeah, you I know.
1: Mm-hmm. I took the sting out of a scorpion. A <laughs> gentleman.
2: Um, uh,
0: they're good episodes. What
1: they're good, episode.
0: the they're good episodes. And The Doors? Great band. Great band. <laughs> this fair. is the end. Doom, doom, doom. All right. Um, oh, very sad. So, anyway, today we are. AJ's got a big book in front of him and he's got a lot of scribbles in the margins. That means we're doing philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> so, is, that, is that what that means? You know, yeah. Um, so, I think this is episode four, four. on Kant. And um, I'm keeping my, was it my hankles? Your, my hackles? Uh, hackles. I'm keeping my, you can, no, you can no, bring no. them up. My no, hack, I'm, I'm, they're docile. I don't think uh, I'm going to
1: say anything that's going to hackle okay. you. In fact, I think you will be pleasingly um, vindicated.
0: Oh, mm. I'm Graham. This is AJ and Thomas. Hi. Hello. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we do this. I'm AJ. He's Thomas. We yeah, do this, this podcast. Um, I'm Thomas. He's AJ. And um, that's yeah, funny. that's it. We covered yeah, we all we the took, bases. We took the back roads this morning yeah. getting through the intro. Rock and roll.
1: <laughs>
2: we made it eventually. Yeah, we got there. Yeah.
1: So yeah, this is our fourth episode on Kant. It's a journey that matters. I was going to – I was considering not continuing the series because it's <laughs> it's plenty interesting. I really like it, but I thought maybe we had sort of gleaned all we could possibly glean from Kant with the whole categorical imperative and that would be the thing you take away. But, but this no. is a I – th- I think there will be some good dis- discussions to come out of this mm-hmm. final chapter mm-hmm. because all of Graham's hackles, the hackles mm-hmm. that he has raised – I think will be justified. Oh. And he will he will feel I he'll walk with a little more a little more sway to his hips. Yeah, you know, that's what I need. He'll peacock a little <laughs> bit around after after I get t- done telling him that he was correct there on this. Because things. Kant agrees with him,
2: or is Graham just about to disagree with everything you're you're gonna say in this? Because last I think second.
1: Kant I think Kant really? and he are going to agree by the end of Wonderful. This. this is great. And then I think you will be best friends forever, oh you and gosh. Kant, and you often will really enjoy it. Yeah, off into the really sunset. Yeah, oh in the sunset I'm so I think all of your hesitations he addresses. And then you'll be very happy okay. by the end of it. So chapter three, the final step from metaphysics of morals to a critique of pure pat- practical reason. Okay. Which obviously makes sense to me. It's quite the promise. Uh, yeah. And if you are a Kant scholar out there and you take issue with the way that I'm presenting this, well, I feel like I only am. You guys ever go from your car to the house and you're carrying a whole lot of things and yep. there's that one yep. thing that you're kind of holding with just the edge of your elbow and you're not yep. sure quite sure you have a full grasp on it. Yep. Any moment it might fall. That's kind of how I feel about this last chapter. <laughs> but I feel like I have a decent enough grasp. Great. And I'm, so if I have to stop and gather my thoughts a couple of times, please don't be angry. It's Kant. It's Maybe, hard to get through. Yes. Maybe our Kant gym friend will uh, we'll, chime in. Yeah, shout out to Kant gym guy. Mm-hmm. You, you know, pumping up the brain yeah, keep going. and the biceps. Hey, man, get that extra rep in. Yep. <laughs> We're behind you, buddy. We're behind you. <laughs> As we sit here eating oh goldfish and yeah. talking about philosophy. Okay. So he starts out with. Talking about freedom and autonomy of the will, right? I think in the last chapter, he sort of assumed that we are all free, right? He's just yes. sort of assumed human freedom. He's going to address that a little more right now. And he basically says at the beginning, so here, here's, he gives a couple of definitions. The will is a kind of causality that living beings have so far as they are rational. So it is your ability to cause things. Freedom would then be that property whereby this causality can be active independent of alien causes determining it right so you can be your causality work your causality out into the world without something else telling you what to do just as natural necessity is a property characterizing the causality of all non-rational beings so things that work by instinct they need food they are pretty much pushed around by the natural world they don't have a self-determining cause right and he points out that because we that is that thing then if we have freedom it sort of carries with it moral autonomy, right? Because if I am free and I have my own causality without something else determining my will, then it almost implies the categorical imperative, right? What else can then freedom of the will be but autonomy? That is the property that a will has of being a law to itself. And the proposition, will is, in all its actions, a law to itself, is essentially the categorical imperative. So he's pointing out when you have one, you have freedom, you kind of get the other, autonomy of the will, right? Moral autonomy. And then in the next section, he talks about how freedom must be presupposed as a property of the will of all rational beings. So it kind of works the other direction, right? Um, Every being who cannot act except under the idea of freedom is just for that reason really free from the standpoint of practice. That is to say, all laws inseparably, inseparably bound up with freedom are valid for such a being, just as if his will could be proved to be free in itself and by means of proofs taken from theoretical philosophy. Um, It is possible to conceive of a power of reason that consciously regards its own judgments as directed from the outside. Right? So, or sorry, it is impossible. You cannot, we cannot think of a person who who is talking about morals, and then he consciously conceives of himself as being... Like, directed even in that conversation by a force from outside. So if you are discussing morality and you're talking about autonomy of the will, you're almost sort of implying your own freedom. So here we have a problem, right? Freedom sort of implies autonomy of the will and morality, and morality and autonomy of the will sort of imply freedom. It's this weird circular reasoning that doesn't really get us anywhere except pointing out that... um, that they're kind of the same thing, right? They come together. And that's as far as we've gotten. We haven't really proven freedom or morality. We've just sort of said, well, oh, they sort of come together and apply each other. That's as far as we've gotten. You guys with me so far?
0: Yeah. No. Uh,
2: <laughs> can you give me an example? Um, well, like the fact that we have moral discussions implies that there's some autonomy in making those moral
1: decisions. Or
0: you at least have the idea of freedom. Yeah. Sure. But isn't that true about if the fact if we have like conversations about what we want to have for dinner? Yeah, it also implies freedom.
2: Oh, okay. We we are free to pick what we want for dinner.
1: In that, I guess maybe you could say that you are pushed by necessity, right? Natural necessity to have dinner, right? And so in that way, you are pushed. But if we're talking about okay, if we talk about
0: what glasses, what kind of scotch we want to have tonight,
2: same thing.
1: But we're not pushed by necessity. We enjoy tasting certain things. Sure, that's that's a natural thing, I guess. Sensational. So we're not pushed by necessity Well, I mean, it even I guess it just says its own judgment as directed from the outside. For in that case, the subject would attribute the determination of his power of judgment to some impulse, not to his reason. Reason must regard itself as the author of its own principles independently of alien influences. It follows that reason, as practical reason, or as the will of a rational being, must regard itself as free. If you are going to make judgments, you must regard yourself as free. And if you regard yourself as free... Moral judgments, right? You have the, the categorical imperative. So yeah, I guess even choosing in scotch, you would be sort of regarding yourself as free in that way. But does is it,
0: does the two way street work on both of those things? Like by, if, if I walked into a room and I saw two people talking about scotch, I could assume that they were free. Well, they re- that they, they regard themselves they as regard free. Themselves Not that they as free. are free,
1: and that's his point. It doesn't really prove that freedom is real. Mm-hmm. All it does is show that they come together, right? If they're making judgments and regarding themselves as free, they're also sort of implying the categorical imperative, which implies freedom. It's a circular thing. Gotcha. He actually, and that's what he's there to address. Like, there's there is an apparent circular reasoning here, and that's a problem, mm. right? Are you good, good yep. so far. Yep. Okay. Um, My hackles are confused. I <laughs> Okay, so he... Let's see, I... I um, here, I'll, I'll phrase it how he phrases it. We must frankly admit that a kind of circle shows up here from which there seems to be no escape. We suppose ourselves to be free in the order of efficient causes in order that we may conceive ourselves to be under moral laws in the order of ends. And then we proceed to think of ourselves as subject to moral laws on the ground that we have ascribed freedom of the will to ourselves. For freedom and the will's law-giving of its own laws are both autonomy, and therefore reciprocal concepts. But just for this reason, one of them cannot be used to explain the other or to furnish its ground. It can be most, at most, used for the logical purpose of reducing seemingly different ideas of the same object to a single concept, as different fractions of the same value can be reduced to the lowest common terms. Does that kind of make sense? Nope. There are these
2: two things that seem separate, but they both imply the existence of the other. So if we're going to answer, how do we know we have them? we're We're answering, how do we know we have both of them, essentially, at the same time, right? Both freedom and moral autonomy.
1: Yeah, well, here he, the two things, exactly as he phrases it, is we suppose ourselves to be free in the order of efficient causes, meaning we can cause things. Okay. In order to conceive ourselves under moral laws. Right, so you can choose to be under moral laws. Right, you have to be free in the efficient causes to conceive yourself under moral laws, okay. but you are also subject to these moral laws on the ground that we have ascribed freedom to will, free will to ourselves. We addressed that last time, right? Um, you are partially because of your free will subject to all
0: of these moral laws. But where are they, like? Where do they come from?
2: Reason.
1: So the moral laws is it's still the categorical imperative. Like, yeah. that's what it would reach back to. Okay. I, and the the big question you ask, I think he may have already said it. Let's see. Um, yeah, he mentions it, and then he's going to mention it more later. So here's, here's his quick address of the thing that you brought up the time last time is what is compelling you to follow these? Yeah. Right? You've got the categorical imperative. You know what the according to Con- the right thing is to do. Mm-hmm. But what is actually making you do it? What mm-hmm. if you don't care about those things? Or you're like, yeah, I know that this is what everyone should do. What is binding me to this yeah. this sort of duty? So is it just the love of being logical? The uh, love of being reasonable? We're going to get there. Okay. It's a good question. Uh, so he- here's his first address of it. For if someone asks us, why must the universal validity of our maxim as a law be the condition that restricts our action? So why does the categorical imperative have to be the thing that runs us? Mm -hmm. And what is the basis of the worth we ascribe to this way of acting? So why is it worthy to do? A worth supposedly so great there cannot be any interest higher than it. And asks how it happens that human beings believe this alone to be the source of their personal worth, right? Your Mm -hmm. moral... uh, Polteritude is right. Is faith right? Isn't that the right right word? Polteritude. Can you Google it? I think I got it right. Sure. It might, it might also mean hot, like pretty.
2: Uh, beautiful. Polterpoltertudinous is oh, beautiful.
1: Stinking missed it. <laughs> so your your moral worth, right? Mm-hmm. We consider this to be directly tied to our personal worth. And asks how it happens. Uh, in contrast, to which the worth of a pleasant or painful condition counts as nothing. Like you will pursue the good even if it hurts. Mm-hmm. To these questions, we could
0: give no answer. Mm. And he's, and he's going to address it again later. Okay. So he says, right now I can't, I have no idea, I have no compelling reason why you
1: need to do this. Yeah, so right there he says, I, I don't really have an gotcha. answer. And then he's going to get further into it in a minute. So he says, here's the solution to our sort of seeming conundrum where we're trying to get free will. Okay. And he starts with something that our high school students often have a problem with, right? They're like, okay, I see this table, it hits my eyes, I touch it hits my fingers. How do I prove it's real? Right? How do I know it's actually a thing and not just an illusion to my eyes and my fingers? How do I know any of this is real? I can never really like know the table. Right? Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is I've, a- I've had that conversation with a student recently. He's like, how do I prove that anything I know is real? Well, Kant's position is you can't really. Mm-hmm. He calls this the world of the senses. I will never know the actual being, the essential being of this table. I will never be inside it. I will never know this being. I can only react to it as it comes through my senses, right? That is the only way that I can interact with literally anything in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Including, weirdly enough, my, like, very base ego, right? Who you are, Graham, sometimes comes at you through your senses, Mm right? Right? Separate from this, the world of sense is the world of intelligence, right? Okay. I want to see if I can give a good definition for it. Uh, here. Now, a human being actually finds in himself a power by which he distinguishes himself from all other things. That pa- and, and even from himself so far as he is affected by objects. That power is reason. A pure spontaneity. As pure spontaneity, reason is elevated even above the understanding in the following respect. Although the latter two is spontaneous activity and is not like sense, confined to ideas that arise only when we are affected by things, it can be produced by its own activity, only concepts whose sole purpose is to bring sensuous representations under rules and so unite them in one consciousness. So he basically says, we've got this world of sense that's coming through all of our feels, right? Mm -hmm. And we can never know the pure being of those things. We can never get past our senses inside those and know them as they really are. Mm But we have a thing that is separate, that, that that like distinguishes us from all of all those other things, and that is reason, and we use reason not only to just basically understand those things, but to bring all of those things under. A set of rules, right? Bring sensuous representations under rules and unite them in one consciousness. It's to make sense of everything, right? So this is our reason. It's it's kind of pulling all of those things together. So this is that like Aristotelian thing, the thing that is unique to he- to people. Yes, is this is to- the entirely rational to faculty. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It manifests its highest function in distinguishing the world of sense from the intelligible world, and thereby prescribing limits to the understanding itself, right? A rational being must regard himself as an intelligence, as belonging to the world of understanding rather than the world of sense. So there are these two worlds. We have our world of sense and we have this world of our understanding. And this is, this is what all of my students sort of, that, that gap they want to bridge. They want to bring this world of sense across their senses and into that which they know to be themselves, right? This categorizing faculty that they have that we would call reason, right? they would probably identify it as your soul. You want to take all these things and touch your soul to the soul of the table and know exactly what the table's soul is, but you never really can. Okay, so a human being is essentially living in two worlds all at once. He can consider himself first so far as he belongs to the world of sense under laws of nature. So because we are, and you are, like here I can meet Graham and he is in the world of sense to me. Hello. And he is even kind of in the world of sense to himself, right? There are pieces of him that... Yeah, exactly. Um, so, because of that, you are under the laws of nature, right? And the laws of nature mean that sometimes you are forced to do things. I fall yep. when when I trip. Precisely.
0: I, uh, I eat when I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. I avenge when I'm wronged. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I, I suspect you'd be good at it. Okay. And secondly, so far as he belongs to the intelligible world under laws that are not empirical being independent of nature, and are founded on reason alone. So you have a, a second law that isn't bound by the natural world that is your own sort of reason, right? So because you live in these two worlds, you have t- sort of two different laws working upon you. So as a rational being and consequently as Wait, a... Wait, what's the other world? So you have head world? The sensuous world? Yeah. And then you have the world of reason. What's, okay... So you belong to the intelligible world okay. under laws that are not empirical, being independent of nature so and found on reason alone. Whole new world. <sighs> was all of that just no, the setup the whole new but world? But it came no.
0: to me. Yeah. Like it was, but no, it's, so it's like a fantastic point of view. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> Shining, shimmering, splendor. Yeah, yeah totally. Agree. <laughs> no, but it, so is this like I can imagine things, and I can, or I can deduce things I and can, categorize them. All I these
1: sense, all these sense things. You're not just sensing them in there and living in that world.
0: You you get to categorize yeah, and evaluate. Can, is you it like also I can think about probability, so I can think about causation. Sure. It? Yeah, I think I think all of that's probably included. So if I if I'm gonna throw a baseball through uh through like a ring, like a tire. Like, like uh-huh. a hanging tire. Yeah. I want to, like, thread the baseball through that tire. I want to aim. Mm-hmm. And I picture it in my mind. That's the in- intellectual world. That's my, right? That's that one world. And then when I actually do it, that's the sensual the world. world. Yeah. Um, so sometimes your intellectual world and your sensual world don't line up. Because I can think about we throwing a baseball through a, a tire. But I can suck at it and miss it.
1: Yes. In fact, it's the same thing that kind of happens with right and wrong. Okay. Right. You can know a thing is right and not do it. And that dichotomy Mm -hmm. living in a world of reason and in a world of sense is actually what lays the groundwork for even the possibility of saying this ought to have happened. If we only lived in the world of intelligence, Mm -hmm. the stuff that we knew should happen would just happen. Right. Right. We would just do it. It's the I will do this. But because we also live in the world of sense, that thing can be undone because our will is messed with by all these sense experiences that we have, by desires that we have, by all this extra garbage. And so it's like, yeah, I know I ought to have done this, Mm -hmm. but I didn't do it because we kind of live in these two worlds. Okay. And then he says, that sort of solves this whole circular reasoning problem. We have now removed the suspicion which we raised earlier, namely that there might be a hidden circle in our reasoning from freedom to autonomy and from autonomy to moral law the suspicion that in effect we had perhaps assumed the idea of freedom only because of the moral law in order to later derive the moral law from freedom, and that we were thus unable to offer any grounds at all for moral law, but had merely begged the question by putting forward a principle which well-meaning souls would gladly concede us, but never as as a demonstrable proposition. We see now that when we think of ourselves as free, we transfer ourselves into the world of the understanding as members, and we recognize the autonomy of the will together with its consequence, morality. Whereas when we think of ourselves under obligation, we view ourselves as belonging to the world of sense and yet simultaneously to the world of understanding. So because we are lawgivers, we can be in this world of intelligence. And because okay. we are subject to laws, we are in the world of sense. So it's not that we are sort of doing a cyclical thing, right? We are subject, therefore we must have a law, therefore we must be free. And because we are free, we can be lawgivers. It's it's not this cyclical thing that he
0: has, he has going, right? Yes. Okay. Thoughts so far? And... The law-givingness of us is using our reason to apply the categorical imperative. Yeah, essentially. Okay.
2: What did you say the, na- the name of this chapter was? Are we getting, is he critical of pure reason? Is that...
1: It is. A final step from a metaphysics of morals to a critique of pure practical reason. I'm just wondering where the
2: critique comes in because he seems very pro- uh, that reason that he's talking about. So
1: well, I think I think practical reason is saying. I, you know, I've never fully been clear on what he means by practical reason, but yeah. I think what he means by practical reason is saying, this thing is like this specific thing is good. Yeah. But oh, oh, oh. I could be wrong.
2: Okay, it's just again, it just at, at its face value, it seems like he's very pro this need for both of them, which includes reason as one of the of the of the pieces here. But uh, no, I'm following as much as I can with. Hearing this all for the first time. Yeah, am I doing okay? Yeah, yeah doing, doing great. Good. Doing, doing great. Doing all right yeah. so far. Definitely.
1: Okay, how, how are we on time? Oh man, it's flying by. Yep. Holy cow! I enjoy being in the sensual world with you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. But I'll never know the true Graham. You never that's will. Never. Our souls will never touch. Never touch. Sad. Okay.
0: What's that Death Cab song? Oh, I'll follow you into no, when the dark. Soul meets body. When soul oh, that one. It's, so it's it's a con. It's a con. Uh, Is it song. really? I don't know. Oh. I always made that
1: up. Maybe you have body. you have been toying with me all day. First the Clifford the Dude, dog. Do you thought that? You said the dog. And now, soul meets body is a Kant the cont song by Death Cab. Yeah, that wasn't surprising me. Shattering you like giving me dreams and then shattering them all day. Um
0: okay. <laughs> you got it. That's what you got to do, do your AI computer generated imagery of yeah. like type in Clifford uh, Clifford the dog at the Battle of St Albans and see what you get. <laughs> oh
1: <laughs> that's a great idea. I will Listener, if you are looking to the. If, if you go back and look at the, at the artwork for last week, it is an AI generated <laughs> Clifford the Big Red Dog at the Battle of St. Saint Al- saint Albans? St. So. Albans. St. Albans. How idea. do you spell Albans?
0: A L B A N S. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I he's a saint of, I'll do it for sure. That's so funny.
1: Do you guys think we should have an episode
0: on what is it, the new Chat GPT. Um, Listen, no, you you heard is about cla-
2: ChatGPT? Yeah, is it classical? I don't, why not why did you want to talk? No, about No, but it? if we walked
0: know. in and ChatGPT was talking to ChatGTP uh, GTP about GPT. Scotch, wouldn't we consider that it was like intellectual? I don't know,
1: maybe. Uh, although I've read its writing and it's not very good. Yeah, yeah, is that true? Oh, it's not good.
2: Because I would love for you to give it one of your prompts that you give to your students and then like toss it in and grade it. Like, I did it.
1: Did you? And so I actually did this process with my students. Yeah. I put in my most recent prompt. I said, write in classical rhetorical form an essay that claims this. Yeah. And it didn't write it in classical rhetorical of course not. form. Yeah. It didn't use any quotes or evidence. Right. And it basically was the most bland, yeah. useless, vague language. Yeah. And I, I put it, I put three paragraphs on a page and said, okay, I want you guys all to edit these and then we'll add them together. Mm-hmm. And they threw it up, and I said, okay, after we edited them, I said, there's one that is good, one that is bad, and one that is mediocre. Okay. The good one came from C.S. Lewis's A Preface oh, to Paradise Lost. It's funny. The bad one came from a leadership book that I'm currently reading. Hilarious. You could delete everything except maybe one sentence. Okay. It, it was it's, all useless. Yeah. And the mediocre one was chat GPT, and, yeah. and sort of blew all their minds. They're right. Like, whoa, because it really isn't that good. It's yeah. just a lot of seemingly substantive language that doesn't actually convey any substance. Hmm
2: maybe this would be a good episode that does sound interesting yeah okay. anyway
1: it's fun yeah try it try it out cool. listener yep. it's, it's all vague and then we had it write love letters and we actually had yep. to write vows the yep. fun thing is if you're not watching it it'll write a love letter in which it accidentally proposes like at the end of, it's like i can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you and i was like whoa, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> that love letter took took a whole leap in a direction i wasn't expecting it's lonely yeah. okay so hence if I were solely a member of the world of understanding, all my actions would conform perfectly to the principle of the p- autonomy of a pure will. So if you only lived in the world of your, your brain space, mm-hmm. then all of your actions would completely align with a pure will. If I were solely a part of the sensible world, they would have to be taken as conforming completely to the natural law of desires and inclinations. So if you were only sense, then just whatever you wanted and whatever your desires were, you'd, you'd head for that. I'm like a dog boy. Yeah. Consequently to the heteronomy of nature. In the first case, they would rest on the supreme principle of morality, the categorical imperative. In the second case, on that of happiness. And here is not your definition of happiness, which is like moral virtue, but mm-hmm. his, his definition of just like human bliss. Mm. Like you are just feeling good all the time, I think physically and materially. But since the world of understanding contains the ground of the world of sense and therefore also of its laws... It thus gives laws directly to my will. So because the world of sense is sort of built on our world of understanding, right? That's how we interact with the world of sense. It can give laws to the rest of us, right? We live in these two worlds, but the world of our brain space is the lawgiver to the rest of it. And must be conceived as thus lawgiving. Therefore, although I regard regard, regard myself from one point of view as a being that belongs in the world of sense, I shall have to recognize... That as an intelligence, I am subject to the law of the world of understanding, that is, of reason, which contains this idea, contains in this law the idea of freedom, since you can't really conceive of yourself as making judgments without freedom, Mm -hmm. right? And thus in the autonomy of the will, I must therefore regard the laws of the world of the understanding as imperatives for me and see the actions that conform to this principle as duties, Why? Because because the world of our sense mm-hmm. is codified, organized, evaluated by the world of our intelligence. Mm-hmm. And the un- intelligence contains within it the idea of freedom. Mm-hmm. Right? No, he hasn't even proven it yet. He's like, I'm not telling you freedom exists. But when you act as though you like yeah. are making judgments, yeah. you assume your own freedom mm-hmm. and thus your own autonomous will. And so the laws of the world of understanding are imperatives for you. Right? Your judgments are overarching for you because they assume your freedom and their and also of autonomy of the will. They're not being pushed around by any, anybody else. They are your judgments. Yeah. So they're impar- so they're your duty.
0: But what 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 about when you get competing competing moral ideas where it's like they're actually kind of pick your poison like either one is you wouldn't be, you wouldn't get blamed for one but but they compete, and they're, they, you need to make a decision. How do you know what your duty is when you have conflicting, competing duties? We can go back to the classic example we've always used of, like, fighting the war, fighting in the war for your country, or not depriving your mom of her last child. Or what, remember? Oh, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, again, I don't think Kant is trying to avoid complex moral questions, mm-hmm. right? Your, your duty is both to your country and to your mother. It's up to you to decide which which one of those things has a greater pull upon you. I don't think he would controvert either of those. So the categorical imperative then? His, his point here is to say that either way, those are a duty. Yeah. It's not to say, it's not to help you choose which one is right. He's saying when you finally figure it out, that one is an imperative for you. Because you are acting as though you have freedom, as though you have autonomy of the will. And because that autonomy of the will is how you interact with the sense world, it's a duty, right? Mm-hmm. You, you have to act in accordance with those laws.
0: What about just? Oh, and I guess I would if if your decision was then like be super selfish and like not fight in the war and abandon your mom. He would say that that was the immoral thing to do because if everybody did that, that would be bad.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's it, it's a thing. Let's see. I'm wondering. There's a section here I have highlighted to read, and
0: I'm not sure if it's actually helpful to us. Um, where do we get the concept of? of a duty being something that's bound binding to me. Uh, we're getting there. Okay. We're not there yet. Like, why should I, why should I like, again, I can, yeah, I know the right way, but I don't want to do it. But
1: so he would say that that's because Ooh. the, you have your sense world is
0: interfering with your brain world. Can we, so it's, so he's saying there's, it can never exist. I know with, I'm putting it simply, but where no, there's just, something uh. that, uh, there, we can't think of a scenario where it is... The categorical imperative should say, do this. But... If there's a scenario where the categorical, categorical imperative says to do it, and I don't do it, I'm always wrong. You are... I think right here he would say
1: that you are going against... Like, you are being subject to the law of necessity, mm-hmm. which is the law of, essentially, the, the world and not to the law of your own reason, which is telling you what you should actually do. So he points out that even a villain, like even the worst villain, when he sees examples of goodness, and on- that's the section I was just going to read, when he sees examples of goodness and honor and faithfulness and truth, he, like nobody would look at those and say, ew, he, he even wants to bring those about in him himself, but he knows he can't because he is subject to the to the law of his own impulses. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't really want to. Even though he he knows it would be right to do so. And he like, Desires to bring that apart in himself, himself, but the law of his natural desire—you know—because he he is so sunk into the sensuous world, he is subject and cannot break himself out of it. Hmm. Does that help make sense of it? I guess so. Yeah. Why don't you keep? Yeah, keep going. Okay. So then we get to let's see. There's another apparent contradiction. So done. Sorry, I'm reading my underlines. Give me one sec. Okay, I think. Sorry, as you can tell from the reading, this is all kind of complicated. So I'm trying to. Uh, both reason and nature. You, you convinced
2: Thomas. I'm always convinced. Yeah. I always think like the goal is to understand these ideas and like us agreeing is kind of a secondary thing. Um, So
0: do you think that the concept of categorical imperative is a helpful one?
2: Yeah. Again, it's a, we're, it's rehashing a conversation from before, but I think the, having that idea of we make decisions as if there are universal laws and then we don't give ourselves, ourselves easy outs as to, well, our situation is so, Special we don't have to follow those universal laws. Mm -hmm. I think that's important just on a practical level. Um I'm I'm curious in this last section how he ties together everything that you're asking about, but um
1: Okay. Yeah. So the next part he talks about the extreme limit of practical philosophy. His his first point is that we could easily make the mistake in thinking it's a contradiction to ascribe both personal freedom and natural necessity to the same actions, right? You live in the sense world and you have personal freedom, Mm -hmm. doesn't that kind of bring you to some sort of impasse, Mm -hmm. right? Where you're both free and subject, how does that work? And folks would claim that, you know, free will doesn't really exist. In all these things, you are subject to the law of necessity, even Mm -hmm. if you think you're not. I think that would actually be the modern stance, that even as we make moral judgments, even as we think we are, you know hanging out with our family and doing the right things. Like, all of this is just psychology and that science and our biology drives all of it. Kant says, no, mm-hmm. that that is not the case. Both of these things exist at the same time. So he then soon realizes that both of these can and indeed must take place at the same time, for there is not the slightest contradiction in holding that a thing as an appearance, as belonging to the world of sense, is subject to certain laws, laws of which It is independent as a thing or being in itself. So because you exist as a human body, you are subject to the physical laws, Mm -hmm. right? Sense world. But those laws don't really affect you as the thing in itself. Gram, the gram core, the the soul. Gram core. Graham
0: core. The new fashion that's sweeping the nation. I
2: was hoping it was music, you think?
0: Oh, gram core? Yeah.
2: Uh-huh,
1: uh-huh, uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> okay so it says in reason alone and indeed pure reason is the source of law and also that since in that world he is his true self as an intelligence only these laws apply to him directly and categorically it follows that what desires and impulses spur him to do cannot impair the laws of his will as intelligence. Indeed, he doesn't even hold himself responsible for these desires and impulses, nor impute them as to his true self. So you live in these two worlds, and sometimes you have, like, maybe desires that are inappropriate or thoughts or feelings that are, aren't quite inappropriate, and you don't really think of that, even as a Christian, you wouldn't think of that as sin. Yeah, You're just sort of subject to your animal nature. Yeah. And it is in your intelligence, in your inner core where the law is truly given. And so you can live in this strange tension between being subject to the laws of nature as a sen- sensuous being, um, sensuous meaning of the senses, right. and then also separate from it as an intelligence that chooses among these things. And you, you actually, even right now, give yourself license, right, on the things that are from the sensuous world. Are there,
0: are there things that sort of straddle between the two? Things okay. The ancient, the old Greek hospitality laws. The, that sort of like those cultural, those cultural touch, touch points, right? Okay. Where if somebody is coming to your home, um, you don't like that. You don't murder or not. You don't murder them. What would be? What's the hospitality law? If Someone's coming to your house. You feed them. You clothe them. And then you don't talk to them till the next day. Yeah. Um, or if you have, and then when they when you send them on their way, you give them a big gift. Yeah. Let's or um, let's say you had like sort of some of those old Bedouin, those old Bedouin customs of, if you invite your mortal enemy to your house and you and your mortal enemy walk into your camp together, you're bound by custom that no harm is going to come to him, right? So you you, you have those sort of like customs. I don't think people would push those as far to say that those were universal categorical imperatives. We have whole societies that don't use those customs that we wouldn't say are grossly immoral. Um, But those are not natural things. Those those are not just like completely in the realm of the senses. So what do we do about those like – those things that cultures have held up as being customs that they are going to follow – For, the you know, and and they have sort of good reasons, sociological reasons as to why that they want their culture to sort of uphold those things. But I don't know, or maybe they are categorical imperatives.
1: I I think you would say they are, right? As a Greek, as living in the land of Greece at that time, can you say, I want everyone to treat their guests with respect and kindness on the first night they're there and send them off with a gift to encourage future travel and uphold the economy? Yeah. But that's
0: that's not... um, But if someone... But if... Someone came into your house, AJ, tonight and was like, I demand I demand a place to sleep. You'd be like, nah, nah, bro, you got there's like a hotel down the street. Yeah, but I, I live we live in a wildly different culture. That's my point. So then the categorical
1: imperatives can be bound by culture? Yeah, sure. Right now I cannot will that everyone should let strangers into their homes so when there's a you, perfectly
0: reasonable hotel down the road. So you do not need to be bound by ancient Greek categorical imperatives. No. So categorical imperatives are change based on the cultures that they're in. Uh, Probably. So are those cultures in the realm of the senses or in the realm of the intellect?
1: They're they're in the realm of the senses. Remember, the categorical categorical imperative, right, the one law is that you must act as though your law become a maxim for everyone. Sure. Right? Um, But it absolutely bridges the gap into the sensuous world, right? When you look at an individual instance, you need to be,
0: say, is this the way I would want everyone to act? It's essentially the golden... Not quite the golden uh, rule. Okay, let's say you were raised in that culture, and at home, that's what you guys do. Yeah, and then you get plopped into you're going to like you, you you're going on a exchange program, and now you're living in New York City. Sure, and um, and you're staying with a host family, and you keep inviting like people keep knocking on your door, and you keep letting them stay in your host family's house, and they're like, "What the frig, AJ? This is no, we don't do things that way here." And you're like, this is how we do it in my home nation. I would be wrong if I didn't do this. Uh, everybody should do. This is a great thing. Everybody should act this way. And they're like, friggin' this weirdo from another culture is bringing his weird culture things.
1: I think I think we're hitting that thing where you are desiring specificity for context, right? Um, we talked about mm-hmm. it with the with like giving money to the man outside the the alcohol
0: the alcohol store. Yeah, no, this is a little bit different in that like now. Your question is: Can a, can part a cultural of can moral can, apply to everyone? Part of me can conceive that AJ is you are you are duty bound to your categor, categorical imperative because you feel like it's a great idea that everybody should do, but you just happen to live in like rough and tumble New York City where they're like, we're not doing that. So you'd
1: sli- simply be mistaken. I think the full categorical imperative would be within the context of the Greek culture, Whenever every wrong. person should do this, yeah. right? And within the context of New York, of New York, you shouldn't invite strangers into random people's homes. And he would quickly learn that with with the people he was staying with. I shouldn't invite randos into my house because it doesn't work like it does in Greece.
0: So the categorical imperative of a a place in time can trump the categorical imperative of other places in time, right? Like if you had your own set of understanding categorical imperatives and then you move to a wildly different culture, you would have to change, you would have to sort of have a different operating system. Yeah, it
1: would probably change according to your context.
0: Okay. Uh But I guess I'm. But I'm that context really,
1: would be contained.
0: But if you were going I still to still don't do, understand how it's not just like an arbitrary thing. What do you mean? Uh I mean, if 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 it, if it can change by context, if it can change by so, like social place and time, it sounds as if like is the is the sensual tail wagging the intellectual dog, or is the no no no. So I think I, I and then one <laughs> the of our sensual. <laughs> Never mind <laughs> <laughs> sensual dog
1: and I think that we are we are bumping up on what one of our listeners astutely emailed to us and that is that when we talk about a categorical imperative it actually needs to be pretty specific we can't just say broadly like man should honor his parents right it has to be typically fairly specific to what's happening and so I don't think that the categorical imperative imperative itself is changing mm-hmm. I think the true categorical imperative would include some especially if it's a cultural practice, mm-hmm. would include some context. So okay. the full imperative would be when in the Greek context or in a context where where good hospitality is necessary for the common interest of the people, one should do this. And then when one is in a place where guests can easily stay at a place down the road and there are a lot of dangerous people about, one should not be inviting people into their home. Right. Both of those would widely apply in Greece or out of Greece. Yeah. Right. And so I don't think the imperative itself is changing. I think it's just when we are in Greece, maybe we need to be a little more specific. And if I'm if I've only ever lived in Greece, I just don't know that I need to be more specific. Just like if I've only ever interacted with like my drunk uncle, who when I give money, he always buys me candy. And then I go see a, a, a guy outside of an alcohol store I don't think they call them alcohols. Let's call them liquor Liquor stores. stores? Yeah, it's a liquor store. Outside of a liquor store asking for my money, maybe I need a little more specificity because I just didn't have the full context, right? So there is a bigger categorical imperative there. From my own experience, I didn't know that more context was needed, but it was needed. And the actual categorical imperative was just a little bit longer. Or the imperative.
0: Okay. Good so far? Yes, I got another idea cooking, but keep going.
1: Okay, well, here here's the bit where I think you get to, like, wag your ears at everybody and be super happy. Prepared. Prepared. Okay. The limits of what we can know and explain, the intelligible world, freedom, and interest in morality. This is, these are, mm. like, all your big questions right here in this last little bit. So that's the title of it. I'm going to read the first little bit, and then you can, like, pump your fist when I hit the part where you feel vindicated. Practical reason does not overstep its limits in the least by thinking itself into the world of understanding. It would do so only if it sought to inspect or feel itself into that world. That thinking is a merely negative thought, that the world of sense give reason no laws for determining the will. It is a pot, so all of this stuff doesn't make, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> um, freedom, blah, 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 power of the will, to ta- it. Ta- 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 but if practical reason were also to take from the intelligible world an object of the will, so something that we are working for, that is a motivating cause of action, it would overstep its limits and pretend to be acquainted with something of which it knows nothing. The concept, concept of a world of understanding is thus only a standpoint that, that reason finds itself constrained to adopt outside of appearances in order to think of itself as practical. The influences of sensibility were determining for human beings. If the influences of sensibility were determining for human beings, this would be impossible. It is nevertheless necessary unless the human being is to be denied the consciousness of himself as an intelligence and consequently as a rational and rationally active cause. That is a cause that is free in its operation. The part that I think vindicates you is if you look for in in the world of reason, if you look from from the intelligible world, an object of the will. So in your brain. Right. We've talked about the categorical imperative. What is what is the thing we are shooting for? Why is your big answer? Mm. What's what's impelling you to do this? It says it can't, right? That's trying to draw like water from a stone. You will never get an object for your will from that inside sense person, right? You cannot draw it from the categorical imperative, and getting it from the outside is also a really bad idea.
2: And where does it come from?
1: Um, he says we can't know. Okay. <laughs> he also says we can't explain freedom. Either there's no basis for it because um, let's see, but reason would overstep all its limits. If it took it upon itself to explain how pure reason can be practical, this would be exactly the same task as explaining how freedom is possible. For we cannot explain anything unless we can bring it under laws whose object can be given in some possible experience. Freedom, however, is a mere idea. We cannot prove it from experience. You cannot use experience to show that you are free. No single instance will ever do it, right? We can merely just sort of defend it. We can point to a thing, someone else will point to, well, it's just your biology doing it, right? Freedom as an idea cannot be proven. It can be defended, but it cannot be proven. We can never draw that water from the stone. And the same is true of our interest, why we should follow morality. And here's the I've, look, I have started. I have dog-eared it. I have circled an R next to it, which means read it. I have, like,
0: this is the spot where, I, according
1: to your so question even, like,
0: a lifetime of, ex- of examples of freedom isn't a proof? Like, if I... Nope. I would...
1: I would say that... That there are a lot of natural forces that have gotten you to this place where you do this. Biology and evolution over hundreds of years have made you the kind of person that is curious, that wants to be correct. And to tip over your bubbly can. That wants to tip over my bubbly can to prove to yourself that you have freedom because as a being that wants freedom. Like, I could give you all sorts of reasons. You can never prove it from from experience.
0: Hmm. So it's all just like the dr- the massive chain of causality just happened. We could put you here. Right? How could you prove otherwise? I don't know. Exactly. Right? You can't
1: do it. Okay, so that's one thing. Can't prove freedom. Nugget thing is next thing is the subjective impossibility of explaining freedom of the will is one and the same as the impossibility of locating and making comprehensible an interest that a human being can take in moral laws, and yet he does really take such an interest. We call it the foundation in us of this interest moral feeling, a feeling that has been mistakenly taken by some people to be the standard. For our moral judgment. It ought to be regarded rather as the subjective effect exercised on our will by the law. It is reason alone that sub- supplies the objective grounds. So this moral feeling that you have mm-hmm. cannot be the grounds for the law. It's an it's effect of it. The afterglow. Sort of, yes. But but what this means is Graham is that you are right. There is no way to derive an interest. Why should you follow the law? Don't know. What is that thing that interests you and makes you follow morals? But... Can't prove it. Some people don't want to follow morals. And that's the thing. That's fine. They, they like, Kant makes no claim as to why you should follow morals. Oh. He says we can't. Okay. Logic cannot provide that for us. Because every attempt to say you should follow it for X, all of a sudden reaches into the sensual world and makes law completely subject to the things that you want. Right. You are now all of a sudden completely subject to food or to happiness or comfort or something else, whereas morality isn't that. Logic cannot provide it, and it can't provide it, especially, you know, like if if we're talking about the human being in these two worlds, the world of intelligence and the world of sense, the world of intelligence certainly can't do it. Can't give you any reason why you are interested in following the moral law, only that we are. Like, it can only observe that we are. We do. And in fact, it seems to be one of the most important things to us. But just like freedom, mm-hmm. we can't really derive it from outside. He says, "Here, here is the limits of what philosophy can so do." So, is it an a priori thing? Is he just sort of say like it's built in? Well, that this is what I'm wondering. Is he's like that? He doesn't he doesn't pro, is like it, make is that the end of it like this, Essentially, no? <laughs> this is the end of the book. He doesn't make any further claims. Right. He's like, I have bumped up against the limits, and the limit is one of them is we can't really prove reason, or sorry, prove freedom, and the other limit is I cannot give you a reason why it is in your interest to follow morality. I simply can't. It is the limit of reason. That's not its job. I can show you, like, what it looks like. I can give it a, give the moral law a grounding in reason. I can show you that to have a moral law, to be a lawgiver, we must assume your freedom. But I can't prove it.
0: I can't prove it's there. And I can't give you a reason to do it. And saying, like, it'll benefit you materially is not enough of a... Like, that's not a sufficient reason. Because you- then you can be like, oh, well, then if this is going to clearly not benefit me materially, I don't need to follow it, but we should follow it because of its morale, if it's moral.
1: The moment it becomes attached to the sense, you can abandon it by just simply not wanting the outcome. Okay. Right. I don't want the like millions of dollars or the personal comfort, right? (laughs) I, I don't care. I can live in a van. I don't care about any of that stuff. So I don't have to follow morals. Right. So it exempts you from that duty. But why are you interested in following your own duty of this law that you've set up, right? That it is your duty because it's your law he says, I can't I can't give that to you. Reason cannot give that to you. It's not something that's possible. So this beef you've had mm-hmm. with this theory that it can't give you a reason to follow all of these imperatives is legit. And Kant doesn't make any claim to, to say it's not legit. Right? I feel like
0: you're not pumping your fist enough is what I feel I'm, like right I'm, now. <laughs> I'm bummed. Why you're you, bummed why? Because I want him to give me the reason so, so you, you could tear it apart. Fight with yeah, it? Yeah. No, so that I I could, so I could be I don't know, like convinced so he could be right. So he yeah. Um, well, this at is, the end of it, it's like, I can explain all this sort of stuff, but like, how do you tell of, you know, like, what do you tell a 15-year-old kid boy? I,
1: and this is, this is sort of where I landed, was I was wondering if what he has bumped up against are premises. Yeah. The unassumable premises of the human life, right? Our freedom, that we act as if we are free... Whether or not we actually have it, we act as if we are, is just a premise of human life. We function as though we're free. We make judgments as though we're free. You tip my can as though you're free. Tip your can. Whether or not you are a Calvinist who believes that God, you know, determines our actions, or a fatalist who just believes that fate does it, or an evolutionist who thinks that, right, evolution is driving all of your impulses, you act as though you're free. In the very choosing of that thing, or of that ethos, you act as though you are free. And so there's that premise. And the other premise is that you should be good. Like, good is good, and it should be followed for its own sake. Mm-hmm. And there, I don't know if there's any way to prove that beyond appealing to happiness or or something you want, or even if you want to bring God into the mix, um, punishment.
0: Now, does he think actively trying to appeal to something like happiness or punishment is counterproductive, or is he like, nah, I guess that's fine for Fully people. counterproductive. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. He says that it's it. the moment you do that, the person can say, I don't care about being punished. And all of a sudden, the moral, morality has no purchase. Or can say, I don't care about the reward, or I don't care about whatever it is. And so morality is just poof, it's gone, right? The moment you can abandon it, if you see what it is aimed at. But if it's aimed at itself, if it is good simply because it is good and should be pursued because it is good, I think that's where you should
0: land. And if God is good, then he is part and parcel of the thing you should pursue so when someone says i don't want someone says this is the right thing to do and i don't want to do it and Kant's gonna say you should do it because it's right and the person says i don't want to do it what's gonna why should i Kant's gonna be like i can't tell you why you yeah
1: should. Kant can say you should do it because it's your law and because it's your law it's your duty and because you don't want to be bound by the things of just this sense world and pushed around like an animal but why should you? What self, in, what, what interest do you have in doing that? I can't provide it. Do you think this undermines the rest of the book? Is this, it seems pretty bad. I don't think so. Okay. I think he is simply trying to attach again, like, like I've been saying, he's simply just trying to attach morality to reason and saying like, there is a reasonable ground for morality in a way to, that it sort of functions. Yeah. I actually like that. He doesn't make pretense at, at sort of establishing more. Yeah. more than that. Yeah. and, I like that that good, real good and real moral, like, seems to be this thing that is valuable in and of itself. It's like, I don't want to say gold because gold is valuable because it doesn't rust and because it's shiny and because we like it, but can you prove that gold is desirable hmm. beyond those things? What if you don't want shiny things? Right. No. I mean, gold is the best approximation I have of it, right? Or, or beauty or right. something. It is something that I cannot prove that you should enjoy beauty for something else's sake. It's just beauty. You should right. enjoy it. Right. It is one of those transcendentals, right? Good is good and should be, should be pursued for its own sake. We should be moral. I cannot give you a reason for it because the moment I do, you will say, I don't care about your reason. And good
0: will go out the wayside. So we should assume that there is a part of the human person that naturally reacts to good and assumes that if they experience it, there's going to be some kind of, like, pleasure or some kind of satisfaction.
1: Is that fair? Yeah, but the satisfaction isn't the point. Yeah, no, I I know, exactly. But still,
0: like, um, uh, it's like if you give a baby ice cream, you don't have to convince a baby to eat ice cream. You give the baby ice cream for the first time, they're like, I would like, this is what I like. Yes, ice cream, desirable for its own sake, not for the sake of some other thing. So, but then there are some, so then we're back to sort of, like, what we should be doing when it comes to raising up a kid to be moral is not to try to convince them why the right thing is right, but to try to develop, but try to work with the the natural grain of their humanity. That rightness is a de- something that they are going to desire in itself. So it's like, it's like a training up of, of taste. Kind of. Yeah. I mean,
1: you could still point out to the kid, to the snarky seventh grader who says like, but why be good, man? Like, it's, doesn't, it's not reasonable at all. You can say, well, actually, it is very reasonable. Categorical imperative. Like, it it attaches directly to our reason, and especially to you as a person that is not simply a material being, right? The you that is thinking is also the you that is directly interacting with morality. But can I give you a... a this you should do because of some benefit to you? No. Good is good apart from what you want out of it. Mm-hmm. You should do it because it's good. And I think that, like maybe not training them in a taste but more giving them more experience of the good is going to be helpful so
0: you don't appeal to some sort of like ideal type you should do this because this is what and make your ideal type this is what the Christian man does or you should do this because this is what
1: what if they say I don't want to be the, the normal Christian man you should um, do it because it's good yeah and yeah, because yeah. good is good mm-hmm. right not because I want or you, you to think be you think like you should do it because else. this is
0: what the good man does
1: but then, you, but then, the moment they say they don't want to be the good man, right? The moment you. Well, then you can say you should do this because it's good, and they say I don't want to be good. I want to be bad. They say, good luck with it. Yeah. Then you, and okay. you, and you, I point out you don't actually want to be bad. Yeah. Right. You know what bad is like. Mm-hmm, right. Right. I'll give you a taste of bad, and then mm-hmm. we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe the by training up the taste in them, you let them experience what good is, and that's the kind of thing that will. And then you can also show them it's reasonable, mm-hmm. but show them the good, help them feel the good, and then. That's it is a it is a premise that must be experienced and pursued, not something to be supported via other means. I actually like it. it, yeah. feel, it feels to me like it makes good more pure.
0: I guess I guess maybe one little hackle, it's just okay, just swimming up. okay, let me hear. It. is that in this ending, Kant hasn't added. To any conclude, any sort of functional conclusions that we would have, we have had with, since with Aristotle, which is sort of we've you used we contrasted with him on the very first episode. Like Kant hasn't given us anything new that Aristotle hadn't already given us.
1: Well, again, I think it's part of a conversation. Other people were trying to say the basis for morality is this. It is. Man wanting to feel pleasure sure or the basis for morality is this. it's man wanting this thing and his point is no it's it is a reasonable thing. and the moment you try to make morality something else other than a universal law that you are giving and subject to, you excuse my language, you bastardize it, right? You cannot get it from simply instances of practical reason to point to. Well most people most moral people do this. It's like mm-hmm. no morality is bigger than that and it's it's more serious than that. But I cannot make you want to do it. Yeah. Okay. I actually think him and Aristotle probably agree on a lot of stuff.
0: Oh, I think so too, which yeah. is why I'm saying, like, I don't, which is, I'm, I'm just sort of trying to figure out what is the, how does he push the ball forward or what does he expand well, on? Well, it seems uh, Aristotle was sort of
1: saying, like, identifying the good and saying, here are all the good things. And he is, I think, getting to the core from which you can derive a lot of Aristotle. Yeah.
0: Okay.
2: Like the reason and logic behind it.
1: Yeah, the core, the core ground from which Aristotle can grow. Sure. Right, you're seeing the trees of Aristotle, and he's showing you the soil. I like it. But did we,
0: did we do it? Did we get to the end of Kant?
1: That's it. Woo, hot dang. I mean, I could read you the rest, but that I mean, those are the big ideas. All right. You glad you read it?
0: Yeah, yeah it's cool. I liked it. That's I I'm,
1: I was especially overjoyed to find that he didn't make good less than it was or morality less than it was and he didn't try to prove freedom when you can't really prove freedom it's just sort of assumed like i think that that is really cool that he didn't try to do some weird roundabout lame way of doing it sure. okay and uh, the whole time i was just cheering for graham in
0: my brain <laughs> yay <laughs> okay well this has been classical stuff you should know with graham thomas and aj and Immanuel kant um you can email us any of your raised tackles at the guys at classicalstuff.net. You can tweet at us at CLSSCAL. You can stuff. stuff. Thank you. You can patronize us on Patreon, where you can have access to in between episodes and monthly AMAs. Yep. Um, and um, we you can find us on classicalstuff.net. That's our main website, and that's it.
1: Yep, and if I got it all wrong, you can send me an email and make fun of me, and I will apologize.
0: (laughs) All right, thanks, guys. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.